Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It is 8.20 in the morning on January the 31st, 2006. I hope you're doing well. I have two topics this morning. One is a sort of technical topic, which I think is kind of interesting. And another one is a rather more non-technical topic that's going to put me into one of my screaming heebie-jeebies, I'm sure. <laughs> so, so we'll save the uh, the screeching till the end. Um, now, the first topic is something that's that's interesting. Uh, from a sort of technical or economically technical uh, standpoint. And what it is, is the question or the issue of foreign trade. Now, I know, I know, it sounds cripplingly dull, but it is sort of important to understand if you're going to sort of take take the stand for freedom. Because one of the things that I saw in an email that floated around recently, um, we get uh, emails from one of Christina's cousins in Greece, uh, and, you know, she's, I guess, some sort of activist, but, you know, uh, completely uh, uninformed, right? I mean, it is, um, it, uh, truth is very hard, and truth is, is counterintuitive, and truth is often countersensual. I've mentioned this before, when you look at theories of physics, you know, the world looks pretty flat, but it's actually round, <laughs> the sun and the moon look the same size, but they're not, um, and looks like the sun generates light, and at night it looks like the moon generates light, but it doesn't. You know, there's lots of things that in physics just don't make any sense. It would sort of be, I guess you could say, basely, sensually self-evident that a bowling ball would fall faster than an orange, but, you know, I think, uh, it was, what was it, Da Vinci who threw them off the top of the Tower of Pisa and actually figured it out? Um, so there's lots of things that uh, are true that are counterintuitive and counter uh, to to the evidence of sort of common sense and, and and the senses. One of those is foreign trade, and it's probably worth just spending a few minutes understanding a little bit about it, so that you can uh, you know, pompously lecture people at dinner parties the way that I do. No, I'm kidding. You've got to be nice, and you've got to make it enjoyable for people as much as possible. Because um, the truth, if it were easy, wouldn't be any fun to explore. Right, the truth, if it were uh, self-evident, uh, we would actually be, you know, pretty much uh, like a, a dog in terms of intelligence, because to a dog, I guess everything is self-evident, but, you know, mostly wrong. So, as far as foreign trade goes, the email that we got from um, Christina's cousin in Greece was something that you may have seen where, you know, I won't sort of, I can't, can't read the whole thing because I'm, <laughs> I'm driving and I won't sort of go into the whole thing, but it was sort of like, you know, this guy, uh, this American guy, you know, sits down in front of his Japanese-made television on his Malaysian-made couch, sipping his, I don't know, Korean-made beer and, and flipping on his German-made television and so on, and then wonders why on earth he can't get any jobs in, in America. Now, this is sort of a fascinating thing, I mean, when you think about it for a moment, and, and I, I can understand that it's like, well, if I don't buy American, then uh, somehow I am harming America's capacity to generate jobs, and therefore uh, I'm going to be jobless. But i got to tell you, that sounds kind of like paradise to me. <laughs> you know, this email, I think it sounds like a wonderful thing. Because if I can get all of these people in these other countries to send me goods even though I don't have a job, even though America's not producing any jobs, if all of these other countries are willing to just send us all these consumer goods, despite the fact that we have, you know, no economy, 
Wouldn't that be fantastic? <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it would be good for them, but uh, I mean, I'd be lovely if I could call up Hitachi and say, listen, I'm not going to be uh, wor working for the next year or two. Can you send me a high-screen TV and some surround sound quadraphonic uh, noise-canceling headphones and, you know, things that would be, you know, tasty to have? Uh, but, of course, they wouldn't, right? I mean, they're not going to... Um, they're not going to send me those things unless I'm going to send them something, because it's trade, right? Foreign trade. And so it's sort of important to understand that there's no... Like, as far as capitalists go, as far as uh, the free market goes, there is no such thing as a country. There's only the minor inconvenience of currency. And that's sort of very important. Trading with somebody in Japan aside from the overhead of currency and, of course, all the bureaucratic regulations and taxes and all of the other barriers and sort of mafia deals that are throw up to impede and profit from honest trade, uh, countries are completely irrelevant. We don't care. We just don't care one little bit about, about a country. And, of course, the question is why? Why? What does this mean? What does this matter? Well, of course, governments are always going to want to promote nationalism. You know, my country is better than some other country because... And a country, of course, is defined as the geographical area that one mafia gang gets to operate in versus another mafia gang. And, of course, that mafia gang is going to want to make you nostalgic and happy that they are, you know, running your lives and ordering you around and telling you what to do and taking half your money. Um, and, you know, the other countries are, are not for a variety of reasons. But all of that is just, you know, it's just propaganda in the service of evil. I mean, it doesn't have any any reality in the world. I mean, obviously, borders don't exist in the world. Countries don't exist in the world. The only things that exist in the world are people and things, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, and I guess people and things and the rules of physics, I guess we can say, are ever evident in the world. But, you know... You, there is no uh, such thing as countries, and you know those are just sort of fictions invented uh, by by predators to uh, keep the sheep in a uh, uh, in an enclosure, right? I mean, the, uh, countries have the same uh, sort of um, uh, role in human life as electric fences do on a cattle farm, right? And it keeps people in the boundaries and makes sure that you know as much as possible the the, the sheep are not going to wander off to be shorn or eaten by some other uh, farmer. So, I mean, that's, that's really the only, the only role that countries have in the world. Um, so it's sort of understandable that given that we're exposed to all of this propaganda about countries, that we are going to feel that there's some fundamental difference between trading with somebody one town over and trading with somebody one country over. And, of course, the fact of the matter is there just there isn't. There's absolutely no difference whatsoever. Whether you go 10 miles or 1,000 miles to trade your goods uh, doesn't matter, and particularly it doesn't matter, of course, in telecommunications, where you know your um, your technical query can travel to India perfectly well, uh, as easily as it can travel to uh, the next town. In fact, in certain circumstances, if you're using voice over IP, it can travel even, easy, even easier across the world than it can across the country. Uh, and of course, if you're dealing with computer code or video conferencing or knowledge transfers or you know anything which can be transmitted electronically from sort of faxes to emails to articles to papers to graphics to any of these things, it, it makes absolutely no difference where the other person is. So as I sort of mentioned earlier, there are only two inconveniences to traveling to dealing with with other countries. I mean, if you discount language, right? I mean, language is an inconvenience, but language is sort of based on uh, on, on culture and, and convenience for the people in the country, so that's not specifically um, government-regulated, 
Although it would be very interesting to see to what degree, if, if the governments didn't run the schools, to what degree English or Esperanto would be put forward as the common language and humanity would be that much closer thereby. But um, So there's, there's language which we're not going to count because it's not primarily a government function. Um, uh, but, uh, of course, currency is a government function and regulations and taxation and import-export duties and all that, all of those are uh, government functions and those are the only things which impede uh, trade. So <coughs> let's, uh, let's sort of follow the path of a dollar as it is spent so that we can sort of understand why it really doesn't matter at all whether you buy something made in Japan or something made in Minnesota or Ontario or you know whatever it is that you're wherever it is that you're living. So if you are a fine uh, Japanese businessman who has a wonderful device that I want, uh, let's just say you have uh, I don't know let's just say an iPod I don't know by the heck they're made but let's just say you have an iPod that I want and uh, I have some noise-canceling headphones that you want. I'm assuming that I have more than one because without, without decent headphones, I'm sure iPods aren't that great. Like any other portable music device you get, the headphones always suck. Um, but, uh, uh, and let's just say that uh, uh, we're going to make this transaction in dollars, right? And let's just say for the sake of convenience that both of them cost $200. So they're, it's not a great iPod, but they're really great headphones, let's just say. So if um, uh, if I, if we have to make this exchange in dollars uh, and and yen, obviously, uh, well, then let's just say dollars. If we have to make this exchange in dollars, how would it work? Well, uh, I would uh, uh, buy your um, iPod. Uh, sorry, uh, the you would buy my iPod in Japan. Uh, so you would send me a check for two hundred dollars. And I would cash that, and then I would have 200 American dollars. I mean, sort of, we're really simplifying this, but, uh, I mean, this is the basic uh, of how it works. So you will send me $200, and I will cash that, and I will have 200 American greenbacks, and I will send you uh, the, uh, the iPod. Now, what am I going to do with this $200? Well, I can't spend it in Japan, right? Because <laughs> Japanese businesses don't take U.S. dollars. Now, I know that some places in Mexico and some Canada and some places around the world will take U.S. dollars, So, I mean, but I'm not going to switch it to a sort of more obscure currency. Uh, but let's just say that the Japanese in general prefer dealing with the Japanese currency rather than, uh, than American currency. So if I've got these $200, there's absolutely nothing that I can do with them unless I want to frame them or sort of, I don't know, keep them in my pocket. Um, <coughs> there's nothing that I can do unless I am willing, uh, unless someone is willing to um, to take them in the U.S., right? The, the American dollars have to end up in the U.S. economy at some point because it's U.S. currency. So it, it could sort of be used, it could be used as fiat currency in other countries and so on, but even that would only be used because somebody in the U.S. would be willing to, uh, to take it. So let's say that, for instance, um, uh, you uh, you sent me the two hundred dollars. I cashed them, and then the U.S. government went bankrupt and was no longer going to to honor the two hundred dollars. Well, it would be a simple theft, right? I mean the, that that um, I mean not exactly a theft, of course, because it's not like you had put the two hundred bucks out there with the knowledge that the U.S. government was going to go bankrupt. That would be the job of the politicians. But uh, uh, I would have no place to spend these these two hundred dollars, and therefore. Uh, you know, I, I, it would be a simple, like I'd lost a, um, 
I had lost a, an iPod and I hadn't gained anything in return. So the $200 that you send overseas in return for a foreign good must, if they are to get anywhere uh, in terms of value for the person that you've bought something from, they have to get back into the U.S. economy and they have to uh, buy goods in the United States. There's simply no other way to use an American dollar overseas than to come back and buy something in the United States. And that's what I mean when I say, aside from the inconvenience and overhead of currency exchanges, which are pretty simple these days, I actually, uh, gosh, way back at the dawn of my computer career, I wrote uh, a foreign exchange trading system for a uh, um, RBC Dominion Securities, which is a trading company up in Canada. And uh, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty automated, a lot of this stuff. So it's not like you have to take your money down to the local uh, money changers, doubtless being uh, whipped by some devout Christian in front of the temple. Uh, you know, it's all electronic and it's all mostly automated. And, you know, to the degree to which it can be automated in terms of complying with customs and regulations and duties and excise taxes and, and so on, it's as automated as possible, although that's much harder. So in a sort of perfect world, let's just say that the entire process, so we're going to talk about a free trade situation here. So this is the stateless society run by DROs and everything's managed to its sort of optimal level and there's no taxation and so on. But let's just say there are still differences in currency. You know, there may or may not be in a stateless world. Uh, we don't know and it's maybe interesting to theorize about but not particularly relevant to where we, <laughs> the little hump that we have to get over in terms of getting rid of our existing governments might take precedence over life in a stateless society around the world. But let's just say that that world is in existence and we are uh, completely electronically transferring both the, the uh, product and the, um, uh, the, the money, right? So I am buying a downloadable, executable from you, and in return, you know, we're doing a visa, whatever, transfer, something, the PayPal transfer, something that's electronic. Well, of course, it would be completely, uh, pretty much, well, we completely labor-free. If you don't count the amortization of the labor, it would be required to program and set up the system of exchange. You know, uh, I, s I give you my visa number, you uh, take the money out of my visa account, and I download the program that I want to um, run, and, you know, there's been no labor involved. No, but no human being has touched the transaction. There's just been this sort of magical movement of digital numbers or digital bits from one place to another. Well, of course, this, this is uh, about as easy as a transaction can get. Um, and it would not be any easier other than the minor overhead of hooking into some foreign exchange trading system. It would be uh, about as easy as it would be within a country. There would be a, maybe a half a percent or a percent over and above. Um, the trade in terms of currency exchange that would be an overhead but of course we're going to assume that you know the country that you're doing this kind of trade with has say natural resource costs or labor costs or some sort of costs that are lower than a one percent differential between the place that it's buying and the place it's being bought from and therefore the trade still makes sense so if it's five percent cheaper labor but one percent overhead in currency exchange you know you're still four percent better off so the trade is going to occur and, of course, that trade is going to occur relatively quickly because it won't take long for that, those labor costs to then be to rise to, to cover the gap, right? Because if there's a 5% difference in labor costs in a very tight competitive market, people are going to open up factories there and then the, that labor cost is going to, they're going to bid up the wages of the workers and the labor costs are going to diminish. So sort of in a perfect transaction with no overhead or almost no overhead, um, you know, this is a completely easy trade. Now, of course, the money that's ended up 
in the uh, that's been taken out of the the U.S. Visa account, let's say, uh, is in U.S. dollars and therefore has to be converted to Japanese yen to be able to spend be spent in Japan. But of course, somebody's only going to buy uh, Japanese uh, yen with there's only going to be able to buy Japanese yen and sell dollars if somebody knows that those dollars can at some point be exchanged for goods in America. I mean, there's a reason why you know currencies which uh, are no longer valid. Uh, can't really be sold or bought except on the sort of collector's market, but they can't be bought or sold for goods because nobody's going to honor them. So it doesn't matter where your dollar ends up. The only way that it's going to be transferred to anyone in any sort of economically positive term is if that person is convinced that they will be able to go and buy U- U.S. goods with that money. It doesn't matter if you if it goes through 20 people's hands. The only reason it's changing hands is at some point it has to be redeemed for U.S. Uh, goods. Now, of course, sadly, uh, U.S. goods can include such ridiculously predatory financial instruments as, you know, treasury bonds or, you know, this sort of stuff. Uh, so, you know, that's one thing that I've always <laughs> sort of chided people on or, or been a little bit more aggressive than chiding them on is, oh, we want to buy Can- you know, Canada savings bonds or, you know, treasury bills or whatever. And it's like, well, you know, let's say that you get, uh, I don't know, three percent a year on a treasury bond it's like well what first of all don't you have any sympathy for the poor and second of all like don't you have any sympathy for your children and third of all do you really like your taxes going up um and you know this is always sort of startling to people because you know it's not that i'm so smart it's just that they've never been taught any of these things and you know of course if you if you give the government money and the government gives you more money back later uh where do you think they're getting the money from? <laughs> this is not a business, right? This is not a profit. There's not there's not innovation that uh, uh, improves profit. They're not reducing the labor costs or time costs of production of goods. They are uh, the government, so they are only going to give you money back if they seize that money violently from you or your children in the future. So you're simply um, paying money up front to have your taxes raised later. And, of course, the taxes will be raised far more than 3% because, you know, the government takes the $100 you put in a, in a, a, in a GIC uh, that's based on state, state uh, bonds. The government takes that money and uses it to borrow, you know, 150 bucks or 140 bucks or 130 bucks. So your taxes are going to go up catastrophically based on you giving the government the money. Uh, so, you know, I, I, if people do want their taxes to go up and do want their children to end up with, you know, sort of economically stunted lives, then by all means, you know, go for that 3%, but, you know, you're losing completely. Uh, your your money is just going, uh, you, you might as well just make a big bonfire and, and send it on fire for, for that. Uh, and the reason why the poor, like, have some sympathy for the poor is that, you know, uh, the... Um, you know the, the the rich get by on on insider trading and mercantilist trade policies, right? That's sort of the the sort of tripartite division of the rich, the middle class, and the poor. The rich get by on insider information, on political pull, and you know, of, to some degree, on capitalist innovation. But you know, they also generally, as as Noam Chomsky has pointed out, there's a lot of public funding of um, uh, innovation, which is then taken over by the private sector for profit. So computers and the internet and so on all all started as government programs and then were all commercialized after the initial R&D had been paid for by the taxpayer. Then private entities come in and start making profit from it. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I know it's true sort of factually. I don't know if it's true economically. But uh, I will say that uh, uh, the rich do fairly well off, off the government, right? 
the middle class uh, get uh, shafted in the stock market and they're then generally herded towards things like GICs, which they don't understand, and so the taxes end up being raised on the middle class, uh, which, um, uh, you know, the, the rich will escape through X, Y, or Z means, offshore trust funds and all this sort of nonsense, tax breaks, and they'll, or, you know, if the if the rich uh, do are being taxed at a high, to a high level, they still have the contacts and the uh, funding ability to be able to get government favors, which, you know, will far exceed in terms of profit the taxes that they pay, right? And that we know that because they do continue to do these sorts of things. So the middle class gets shafted into the stock market because they don't understand how the stock market is manipulated, or even if they do, they don't have the ability to manipulate it. And the poor, uh, you know, live on, uh, the very poor sort of live on government handouts and receive, like many times back in services, what they pay for in taxes. So I mean, the rich do pay their, their share of taxes, and I'm not sort of talking about uh, any Marxist interpretation here, and they do pay a lot of taxes, but um, it's the middle class who are sort of living paycheck to paycheck and not getting nearly as much out of society as, as they put in, and <coughs> it's those people who tend to sort of th- move towards government bonds and so on. And the poor generally don't buy government bonds, right? So the poor will end up with, you know, the taxes being raised, regulations being increased, uh, you know, government predations uh, uh, aggrandizing, and uh, so they'll end up really shafted, right, because they're not even get the nominal, in- they don't even get the nominal interest out of uh, the GICs, so, uh, okay, minor segue, official minor segue, but, uh, uh, so, uh, so at some point, the money that goes overseas has to come back into your economy and buy things, otherwise, nobody's going to accept it overseas, I mean, I, I'm not going to create my own fiat currency from the International Bank of Steff and expect to be able to buy a bunch of stuff overseas because people will say, well, that's that's a very pretty design, Mr. Molyneux, but i got to tell you, I don't really think that I'm going to trade anything on it because you know, nobody else is going to accept it. So, you know, what that means is that I can't remember which economist came up with this metaphor, but, uh, you know, if, if we had a magical machine that could turn wheat into cars, right? So you've got a big hopper and you shove bales of hay in the hopper and, you know, through some horrible, clanking, arcane, magical, horrible thing, out popped, uh, you know, uh, a, a month later, out popped some fully formed cars, you would probably think that to be a rather beneficial um, uh, machine, right? That would be a pretty good... Wheat, wheat, wheat-powered car factories would be pretty cool. Um, and you would probably invest in something like that. Uh, because to turn something as simple as wheat into something as complex as a car is a good thing, right? And so, uh, but if you if you look at it sort of metaphorically, this is exactly what uh, foreign trade is. Uh, you know, assuming that you know uh, we grow the wheat in Kansas and we uh, get the cars from from Tokyo, then uh, this is exactly the same. We we send wheat over in a ship, and then magically a month or so later. Uh, these cars come sailing back. So whether the machine is in America or is in sort of the quote machine of foreign trade is in Japan, uh, it doesn't matter. <coughs> it doesn't matter at all. Um, and one of the things, of course, that makes foreign trade so beneficial is that there are differences uh, based on sort of economic accidents and culture and history and so on. There are differences in, in the values and costs of... Um, uh, various countries around the world. So, for instance, there is a strong uh, streak of the ability to speak English in in uh, in India, especially among the educated classes, because of the the Raj and uh, so the British rule that went on for so many decades. 
So, you know, well, if you have to choose, well, maybe we'll go with, with those guys, right? There's also strong uh, engineering and, and computer science uh, education in, uh, in India. So if you're going to do software, you want to go uh, speak English. Now, Brazil, of course, is on the same time zone as North America, so they're making their play for getting uh, offshore work. Uh, and, you know, so there's lots of... And so the, the costs for these people are very low because the, the cost of living is low and the opportunities are, are relatively minor, so... You know, obviously there's there's disparities, right? Now, this is not to say that all those dis disparities are based on uh, natural uh, history or accidents of economic history. Um, the vast majority of these disparities, in fact, I would say, <laughs> well, let's just say with the vast majority, because I don't want to come up with the vaster majority, uh, they are... Um, uh, it's simply due to uh, state regulation, right? It's government predation on the population. So, uh, you know, I mean, one of the reasons that India is so poor is that, you know, it takes five years to open a business and you have to pay thousands of rupees in bribes. And if you declare bankruptcy, uh, you can't sort of shrug it off in the way you can in North America. If your co a corporation declares bankruptcy, then the debts, I believe, accrue to you personally and you'll spend the rest of your life paying it off. So you don't have this sort of shield, entrepreneurial shield of corporate uh, legal existence, which I, I'm not saying that I agree with that uh, existence of a corporate shield, but I'm just saying that as far as uh, the um, diffusion of risk goes, uh, it's much more risky, uh, much more difficult to start a business. You're taxed much at a much higher rate, uh, and it's very uncertain. I mean, you can't even say when you start to uh, create a business in India that you, you know you, uh, it's going to be five years, going to cost you X. It could be never. It could be one year. It could, I mean, you just don't know when you're going in. So of course, investors who can't who you can't give a fixed cost to are much less likely to invest. And so basically everybody stays with the big stake, with the big uh, sort of monopolistic concerns or businesses that can bypass all these regulations through existing networks of, of bribery and corruption. So I mean sort of one of the examples of sort of why there's a wage disparity in India is because of the government, you know, forcing people to not do stuff or forcing them to do stuff that they wouldn't otherwise do. So those kinds of situations are very important to understand that, you know, where there are large price and wage disparities, it's because, almost always because of government regulation. And certainly if it lasts beyond, you know, half a generation or so, it's definitely because of government regulation, or at least a generation. So, uh, but the fact that there are these disparities is sort of what's important, right? So Canada, up here, we are rich in natural resources. So, you know, we do trade with... Uh, um, with Japan, as Japan has very few natural resources. Uh, Japan, of course, a net importer of things like oil and food, uh, because uh, wood and so, so on, metals, because it doesn't really have any natural resources. So, of course, it's heavily in sort of specialized manufacturing, knowledge workers, and so on, because they take up less space, and, you know, they, they can use that to trade for um, the, uh, the natural resources that are produced by other countries. So, you know, that's sort of a geographical accident uh, that, you know, uh, Canada has these natural resources and other countries don't. So that's all sort of very important to understand that this kind of division of labor, like the division of labor that occurs within an economy, like uh, I'm really great at coding and you're really great at farming, so, you know, I'll write your code for running your combine harvesters and you give me some food so that I can eat so I can code some more. All of that uh, division of labor, which occurs within any sort of sophisticated modern economy, definitely occurs to a very large degree in the free market. I mean, I've become so over-specialized that, you know, I'm sort of like a dodo. If anything changes, I'll have a significant cha challenge, which is actually, a, that's more true in the past when I had pretty specified technical skills. And now that I've moved more into sort of management and finances, uh, I have a little more portable, I guess you could say. 
So, I mean, I'm mostly specialized in Microsoft technologies, so if Microsoft were to go bust tomorrow, not that I'm counting on that, um, my technical skills would be uh, would diminish in worth fairly quickly, but management skills are much more portable. But the division of labor that occurs within an economy um, absolutely occurs between uh, economies, right, so uh, between countries. So countries can specialize based on accidents of history and, you know, geography and so on, Countries can specialize just as individuals do and just as uh, certain areas within the economy uh, does. So, I mean, New York <coughs> obviously doesn't specialize in farming. Uh, New York specializes in swearing. No, actually, New York specializes in knowledge worker stuff, right? So uh, uh, entertainment and uh, financial uh, finances and, and also because it's a port, of course, they, they do tra- um, traffic in, in goods and so on. And so, uh, you know, even within a country, uh, people specialize, uh, areas specialize based on geography. Um, you know, Minnesota's big on farming because it's, <coughs> well, Minnesota, so only farmers would want to live there. Uh, no, because it's flat and it's got good soil and so on, and, and that's why New York doesn't and Los Angeles don't because, you know, you can't grow anything in the air of Los Angeles anymore, I think, except tumors. So, um, so that's sort of important to understand that when, you, when you're looking at something like foreign trade, um, you know, the, the sort of buy American, I mean, is, is complete nonsense. If you buy American only, you are taking away jobs from Americans because you are placing an artificial premium on something called it was made in this country versus it was made in some other country, which means that you're buying uh, things in an inefficient way, right? So if the uh, sweater from Japan costs 20 bucks and the sweater from the States costs 25 bucks, then... All you're, I mean, you can give your 25 bucks to the guy who makes a sweater in the States, but all you're doing then is you're not giving 5 bucks the difference, right? You're not, you're not giving 5 bucks to somebody who makes a bunch of pens or, you know, uh, whatever you want to buy for 5 bucks. You're not doing anything better for the economy by giving 25 bucks to the guy who makes the sweater in the States versus uh, 20 bucks to the guy who makes a sweater in Japan. Because, of course, the guy who makes a sweater in Japan is just going to go and spend those 20 bucks back in the States again. But all that's happened is that you don't have that five bucks left over to buy some other thing. So you're just destroying American jobs if you don't buy the cheapest and best goods that you uh, that you, you please. It doesn't mean cheapest, right? It could be that you want quality and maybe the Japanese product is of higher quality. Well, uh, if you don't um, um, buy to your best taste, right, to, to whatever your highest values are, then you are uh, harming uh, jobs jobs in America. You are not. You're sending the wrong signals to people to invest, so there's going to be malinvestment. Um, you certainly can't guarantee that people will continue to um, uh, to buy American. So you're going to create unstable job situations for people, which is pretty bad, right? I mean, you don't want to do that to your fellow countrymen, even if you are a nationalist. So if I say, well, I want to buy American, so I'm going to buy nothing but American sweaters, and let's say that I convince everyone else in America to do that, then, you know, everybody's going to start investing in sweater factories and everybody's going to get good at knitting and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And then all that's going to happen is that something's going to change, right? So, I don't know, you'll be able to download and print off sweaters from the Internet or or uh, or there's going to be a recession and then people are going to say, well, nice though it is to buy uh, American, I'm now going to have to switch to... Um, uh, to Japanese sweaters because, I mean, I like to be patriotic and I like to wear my pushpin U.S. flag, but the fact of the matter is I simply can't afford the foreign uh, the domestic sweaters anymore. So you certainly, if you come up with something unstable as buy American against your best economic interest, uh, even if you do succeed in that, all you're going to do is cause people to invest in the wrong industries, right? To, and, and that's going to be a huge waste of capital, right? That 
that money could have been invested in an industry that America could be good at, you know, like um, um, making weapons. Um, so you could, uh, you're not doing anybody any favors by creating a sort of buying American campaign and, you know, choosing to buy American with some sort of warm, cuddly feeling uh, over buying to your e economic advantage because that's going to send the right signals to the American economy. And if everybody's buying to their economic advantage and you can always count on economic advantage in a way that you can't count on things like buy American, so, uh, you know, there's just no way that that's going to create a stable situation which is going to result in sort of long-term uh, proper investment. And we're not just talking capital, of course. We're talking uh, people's livelihoods, right? I mean, to have to change one's um, career is, as I've mentioned in another podcast, the biggest financial catastrophe that can occur. So if you're giving wrong investment signals by creating artificial incentives like Buy American, you are not just causing capital to be invested, but people are going to spend you know, thousands of dollars on factory, uh, sorry, sweater manufacturing, uh, factory school things. <laughs> and, you know, they're going to learn how to do these, you know, manage and run the, the sort of sweater factory business. And then when that goes out, they're completely shafted, right? So they've, they've still got 20 or 30 years to go or 25 years to go in their career. And they don't actually uh, have uh, any sweaters to make anymore. So they have to go and retrain, which is, as I mentioned before, a complete economic catastrophe. And that's really not uh, what you want to do. Uh, for your fellow, uh, you know, a fellow anybody, right? So, you know, you always want to buy based on economic advantage and don't come up with artificial things like Buy American. Just out of compassion for people uh, so that you don't uh, sort of send them down the garden path as far as economic incentives go. So, in summation, and I guess I can use the phrase in summation, which I rarely use because uh, I actually just stopped off to get a muffin, so I had a moment to organize my thoughts, which, of course, is a fairly radical notion for me. But, you know, in summation... Uh, you know, viewing a foreign trade as any sort of as substantially different from domestic trade is, uh, you know, it's sort of mere, uh, it's mere prejudice. It is uh, an artificial preference for one set of predatory thugs uh, over another in terms of the government. So, you know, don't sort of, uh, don't, fall, don't fall into it. Don't, uh, don't get suckered in by this sort of uh, nonsense propaganda about, you know, our, our gang is better than your gang kind of thing. And make sure that if you're talking to people about it, just say, uh, you know, ask them, you know, you can put them in that sort of theoretical position. Just say, okay, well, you know, just, just uh, this is sort of my understanding of it. And again, you know, to sort of give you the tips of, of conversation that, that I've come up with, sort of for better or for worse, um, you know, the, to say that... Uh, you know, this is sort of my understanding of it, and I could be wrong, and, you know, <laughs> that's always true, right? So, I mean, that's a fairly good thing to say, because you could always be wrong. I mean, I certainly can be. And, you know, just sort of say, well, this is sort of my understanding of it, you know, that 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 if I buy something overseas with an American dollar, somebody's only going to buy it if they can use that dollar back in sort of my country, right? And people will always say, well, but as an overhead and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, sure, that's why, you know, if there's an overhead where it's not profitable, then people aren't going to do it, right? So, so that's only an overhead if you can get, you know, uh, your leather coat manufactured by people in China for, you know, one-tenth the cost. And then you say, or you can say once you establish that point, you know, although I think that that, you know, 10 times differential in cost is pretty bad, you know, it's, it's pretty bad for American workers. And I, I strongly oppose, you know, stuff like, you know, uh, you know, violent unionism, sort of state-backed unionism and regulations and, you know, ridiculous levels of environmental protection and all this sort of stuff. 
Um, so, you know, you want to try and keep uh, American labor as efficient as possible so that it can genuinely compete with all this sort of third world labor. And, of course, the third world governments are completely evil for keeping their people in squalor, right? Which, as I've mentioned before, to some degree, I'm sure they're kept in power by, uh, you know, governments and large corporations that really like um, having people in squalor so that they get cheap labor rates and so on which is, of course, not to their economic advantage in the long run because you want people to become as smart and educated in economics at all times so that they can generate great things for you from an economic standpoint and trade with you more effectively. But, you know, again, not the fault of the corporations. It's uh, really the fault of the um, of the governments. So I hope that that sort of makes some sense uh, to you. It's a complicated topic, and I'm certainly not saying that I've done anything more than touch uh, on the surface of it. But, you know, as far as this kind of economic prejudice goes, it really is something we, we have to outgrow. Uh, so that we can create a more stable work environment for our brothers and sisters in the economy so that people aren't constantly having to retrain for new things because public whim changes. Whereas if you buy an economic advantage, it's something you can always count on. And a more stable economic life is then available for everyone, you know, which is a wonderful thing. You know, retraining is terrible and, and losing your skills is awful and not being able to break the future is even worse. So, uh, you know, buy an economic self-advantage to whatever you can uh, and you will be doing the best thing that you can for uh, everyone that you know. Thanks again for listening, as always, and I will talk to you soon.